Welcome to Ask the Expert. Today we have Drs. Braulio Marfo Garza and Dr. James Shapiro, both at University of Alberta. Um, and they're talking in Canada, and they're talking today about pancreatic islet transplantation, 20 years experience at University of Alberta. Um, I'm just gonna do a quick little intro, a bio on each of them. Um, Dr. Marfo Garza was born in Monterey, Mexico. He graduated from the University of Nuevo Leon and completed a residency program in internal medicine at the National um, uh, Sciences and Nutrition in Mexico City. The last year of his residency, he, st he served <clears throat> Um, as uh, uh, in, in the hospital there. And during this time, he developed an interest in translational residence research. He, sorry, he spent, I'm trying to let people in as we go. Um, we, he spent uh, a year as a fellow working on molecular interactions between obesity and hypertension under uh, Professor Gerardo Gamba. And while working on these endeavors, he found a research platform, both um, in clinical and experimental research interests, pancreatic, uh, uh, specifically on pancreatic islet transplantation. He started his PhD in surgery under the supervision of Professor James Shapiro in 2018. And since then, he's been focusing on developing strategies to optimize pancreatic islet transplantation, mainly through generating data to inform clinical shared decision-making and by working on how to achieve immunosuppression-free pancreatic islet transplantation. He'll be starting a clinical fellowship at the University of Alberta in August, 2022, during which he'll acquire clinical skills to care for people with type one diabetes and those undergoing pancreatic islet transplantation. Additionally, he hopes to extend his research into patient-centered outcomes and understanding how the lives of people undergoing pancreatic islet transplantation are affected. He's also eager to start a clinical and research program focused on pancreatic islet transplantation in Mexico. Um, so welcome, uh, Dr. Uh, Marfo. And Dr. James Sapiro was born in Leeds, England, son of a family doctor. He dealt, developed a longstanding interest in liver and cell and islet cell transplantation while a medical student. He's been on the faculty uh, of U of A since 1998, where he now holds the Canada Research Chair in Transplantation Surgery and Regenerative Medicine. He was the lead investigator on the famous Edmonton Protocol, which everyone is aware of in this community, um, which is a cell transplant treatment for diabetes. He's the first in Canada to start clinical trials with human stem cell um, derived insulin secreting and most recently carried out the first in human CRISPR gene edited stem cell islet progenitor transplant without immune suppression in collaborations with Viacite Incorporated and CRISPR uh, Therapeutics he, uh, Inc. He's cur his current translational lab is focused on generating autologous IPS islets for transplantation into patients with diabetes without immune suppression and his team and collaborators are working on scale-up and manufacturing efficiencies to make this scalable impossible. He's also, uh, in his spare time, I guess, <laughs> he's director of liver transplant, living donor liver transplant and islet transplant programs at the University of Alberta. His H index is 73. His many awards include the Hunterian Medal from Royal College of Surgeons in England and gold medals from Governor General in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. He has a long and very um, well-lauded um, career in this field. So welcome, Dr. Shapiro. And thank you both for joining us to talk about this really important topic. You know, the fact that, um, you know, pancreatic islet transplantation um, has been going on for 20 years at University of Alberta. You know, where is it going? What's the what's the state of, of the science in islet transplantation right now? I guess we can talk about what's going on in Canada and you know, where's it, what's happening in the US. 
Thank you, Monica. Thanks for having us. And we're obviously very excited to uh, display the, the the data for the for the you know twenty year outcomes in our in our patients. I think we've learned an awful lot in the last uh, twenty years. I have to give um, Brawley a massive credit for analysing a huge database and and digging a lot behind the scenes to get twenty years of data. Um, polished to a point where it could get published in a, in a Lancet journal. So obviously we're very proud of that. You know, over the, over the last 20 years, if I reflect back and look at the very first patients treated to where we are today, we I think we've accomplished a lot. I think we've demonstrated that the procedure itself is safe and it's a lot safer than it was perhaps when we first began because we've learned how to eliminate the risk of bleeding and, and clotting in the veins going to the liver. That, that's a very small risk now for patients. The anti-rejection drugs, I think we've also learned a lot over the course of time in terms of what patients will tolerate in terms of treatment and side effects. What are the risks of cancer? What are the risks of off-target side effects from the medications used? And I think we've learned to use those in a better balance than perhaps we did at the very beginning. And certainly we've got... Um, Impressive early outcomes, 78% of patients being able to achieve periods of time off insulin is, is um, well, was, to, was unprecedented before, before we began those trials. So, so we are um, obviously pleased and proud of that. Yeah. We are struggling, I think, when I look at the long-term data to maintain insulin independence long-term. But I think the data that Brolio has very clearly shown out to 20 years is that we can uh, maintain st stable glycemic control with profound protection against risk of hypoglycemia in this cohort, difficult to, to treat cohort of patients. So I, you know, I'm very pleased with that. And then finally, perhaps I should mention the, the sub-analysis that, that Brolio did with, with the two anti-inflammatory medications, the anakinra and, and the etanercept, medications that have been used previously in rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's inflammatory bowel disease being used here in our patients, mainly on, on the basis of a, a trial that we did in a study that we did in, in, in mice with Mike McCall, a, a graduate in the lab about 12 years ago. Uh, they're showing that the survival of human islets and the engraftment of a, a very marginal mass of human islets was massively increased by the use of these two agents. And it's pretty rare to get a translation from mice to clinic of that kind of approach. And here we are using drugs for 14 days, two weeks, and having profound impact out to 20 years. I, th I think it's very impressive data. Yes. I mean, because there is this sort of, um, sort of, a, I think this uh, fear from the, you know, the patient community, like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to be on these immune suppressive drugs for the rest of my life. But really, that's not, that's not the case, correct? <laughs> No, I think we've we've learned from the maybe from the survival data, Brawley. What do you think? I mean, the survival data for the patients is is robust. We know what the risk is now. We couldn't tell the patients initially twenty years ago exactly what that risk was going to be, what the material risk is. Now we can really quantify that with good, robust data in large numbers of patients and say, well, this is the potential risk. This is the potential risk you face every day with your particular personalized management of diabetes is it worth that risk yeah yeah no i agree um you know i see myself the next year you know talking to patients and being fairly confident that i have some data even from here to tell them you know what this is going to be your risk for this 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 outcome 
right, that we did not have previously. This is the first one uh, reporting, um, you know, adverse events related to immunosuppression. The Miami group reported 20-year outcomes, which are fairly similar to what we reported to, but this study is the largest one. And 20-year outcomes, you, we can talk to patients with some data and say, you know what, I think you know, you're at this point where none of the conventional therapies have worked for you. And I can, I can definitely recommend that you um, undergo an eyelid transplantation, right? So that for me as a clinician too, and, and going to the clinic in a couple of months, I feel really, really proud and really, really good about generating this, this, this data. Yeah. I mean, for those that really are in this you know, situation where they have, you know, hypo unawareness or they cannot control their, um, you know, their blood sugar well uh, and, and keep in range and have these sort of dangerous hypos, et cetera, and excursions into hypers. I think that, um, you know, this is, this is a true opportunity for them to gain control. I recently met um, a woman at a at a dinner who had experienced, who had gotten the eyelet transplant. And she, uh, it was really transformative for her um, because of, you know, her starting point in the way she's living now. So it has, a, it has the capacity to really be life altering. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. But how, how do we move forward from, you know, a, a, a niche treatment that is so effective for a, a few patients that struggle? Yeah. into it into a universal treatment that is good for all and that's i think that that's what we've got to look forward to now yeah well that's the million dollar question and what are your thoughts on that well for me my, my own bias is uh, we need to minimize the need for the antirejection drugs we need to eliminate them if we possibly can that may be a real challenge in patients with autoimmune type 1 diabetes but it may not we'll have to wait and see and i think that the the, the the good news is there's a, a massive amount of progress going on in, in the uh, embryonic stem cell derived field and in in, now in the uh, iPS derived field, making patients own cells is, is technically possible. Uh, will these be accepted in patients with diabetes? We've never before tested cell therapies in patients with type 2 diabetes. So I'm, I'm excited to see what impact we can have in type 2 diabetes as well as type 1. Uh, and maybe the patients that have had previous surgery where the pancreas has had to be removed. And in patients with autoimmune diabetes, what, you know, what will we need to do to control autoimmunity and prevent it come, come from coming back? Will, will gene edits be sufficient? Will we have to give chronic low dose of immunosuppression? Probably, maybe, or, or maybe some other strategy that makes, makes the um, patient re reset their immune system to make them less at risk of recurrent autoimmunity. But there's, you know, I think the, this, the slate is um, a lot more promising now. We've got real tangible progress. We've got progress with the Vertex trials. We've got progress with the Viasite trials. We've got progress with these gene edits with, with CRISPR therapeutics. And I think we've got, you know, a massive opportunity to move all these forward. Yeah. yeah I agree. Can I add something? Just, you know, if this, this what Dr. Shapiro is saying is probably the future. It's what is going to bring us a true cure, right? Uh, or at least the closest one to a cure. But I would like to add in my experience and, and one of my primary objectives is, you know, in parallel, hand in hand, we need to keep generating data, 
We need to keep generating patient center out. And this is one of my, it's going to be one of my focus next year because those stories that you've told us, right? It's just one patient, but it, it makes you look at the therapy with different eyes, right? You can look at numbers, you can look at HA1C, you can look at the creatinine levels, everything. But when you hear the stories, and Dr. Shapiro has done a great job in, in you know, putting some of these stories together, but when you hear them, when you see how these therapies are changing people's lives, I think that is a, a great motivator for all of us working in the field. And also, and, and you, know, you remember the talk with Dr. Rikowski a couple of weeks back, he's saying that one of the things that the FDA, you know, it's, it's, you know, they're limited by the FDA, but one of the things that could change that is patient support, patient advocacy. And he was saying that he, they were having some trouble in, in, in engaging those, those, those people with type one diabetes that have uh, had an islet transplant. And, you know, I think for us in the Edmonton uh, clinical site, uh, I think it, we have the, the best opportunity to, to gather those patients. I've talked to a few uh, patients, my own, just, you know, coincidence and, 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 and this, their stories are amazing. So I'm working on ideas on how to put them together, maybe some qualitative research so we can put those stories out, some common themes. And, and, and that is going to be so important. The same as HA1C levels, glucose control, everything. But the, the stories, I think that that's going to be important for us moving forward. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, the focus, our focus here at Sugar Science is talking about the science, but behind the science are people. And even if they are in sort of, you know, well, if they're well controlled in their diabetes, it still is a very, very uh, heavy lift for them on a daily basis with a lot of, you know, constantly controlling it. And even with all the newest devices, the CGMs and the you know, even the, you know, the, the pumps and, and, and everything that, that comes, comes along with the technology, it still is a fairly heavy lift. You know, the hypos, uh, those can be very devastating and, you know, coming into the hospital when you have a stomach bug and all these kinds of things. So I think you're right to kind of like, think about the patient um, picture as well as the data. And I wonder, um, and I think, right, you probably do that because you're in the clinic. And which is um, so important. And I know right now um, there's a, an effort underway to sort of like really rally clinicians in the US, young clinicians as they enter into endocrinology and other and fields, pediatrics that, you know, interface with type one and really kind of, you know, get them, um, um, you know, excited, I guess, about this sort of the work that you guys are doing as well as, you know, as remaining in endocrinology and, um, sort of giving, um, you know, creating, creating a stronger um, collaboration between these types of physicians and physician scientists. So I think that's all really good. I wonder, you know, it does seem that Canada, to me, um, in talking to several scientists, it seems like Canada is a little bit ahead of things in terms of like trying to really push things forward for patients do you want to talk to that a little bit? I mean, we do have, we, we talked offline a little bit of how the FDA now is um, looking at islet transplants now, instead of an organ transplant, they want to reclassify it here in the US as a, as a drug. And they also, you know, uh, have um, just put a, put a stop, a hold on vertex progress in the um, clinical study. So 
How, how, how does that compare contrast with what's happening in Canada? Yeah, the FDA has sort of got stuck in a groove uh, in, a, in a record, and I don't quite know why. I don't think anybody in the field other than them really, really understands why. I would say that we've been exceedingly fortunate in Canada. We, we put the original data from the, from the seven, eight, nine, ten 10 patients that we've treated in, in the year 2000, 2001 to, to Health Canada and, and to our province. Uh, they reviewed the data, they approved islet transplantation as acceptable therapy, and they regulated it very similarly to, to, um, to, to the way we practice organ transplantation. And it's obviously been very helpful to us, to Canadians who've received islet transplantation and made it very practical. We, we got funding from the government uh, April 2001. So that was, um, you know, literally a, a less than a year from when from when the paper came out in the in the New England Journal. So we were very fortunate in Canada. I think we all expected the the FDA would follow suit. They we we carried out a, a 10 center multi-center trial funded by the Immune Tolerance Network, published in 2006. It took some time to put together and, and coordinate. I think we all assumed that the FDA would use that kind of data to approve islet transplantation. But in fairness, the FDA, I went to meetings with the FDA in 1999, and they've been consistent with their message ever since, that they would not allow islet transplantation to be regulated as an organ, but but as a as a cell therapy. And it's create as a drug, and it's created a a lot of angst, a lot of perhaps misunderstanding, and and it's really slowed the, the progress of, 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 of the field. And, and there seems to be little getting away from that. We we saw, you know, last year a lot of interest by the FDA in in a in a company, Donalet Cell, moving forward with a regulated product under um, a, a biological license, and it was hoped that, that they and other others too would would follow suit, and they probably will. Uh, but it's it, that's very complex for universities to administer uh, transplantation under those circumstances. The the requirements for FDA legislation, the the, the requirements are so heavy for biological licensure that the university institutions are not really best positioned to 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 do that. Yeah, it really. I like what you said. You know, it's can't. It seems like you know what Canada's approach is very practical, and it you know, it certainly allows for those, you know, um, circumstances where people really are in desperate need of the transplant rather than having to go through many, you know, many different hoops to get it. Um, yeah. And the other thing, like when I was, when I was trying to put together the paper, I would, I, I kept thinking, okay, you know, I want this data to, to reflect the reality of what could happen. Like this data that we have, it's, you know, obviously we have a lot of clinical research going on, but it's it's real world, so to speak, data. It's it's you know data that's not not all the patients are in a clinical trial where the follow up is more strict, right? We this is real world data, and this is what a, a clinical eyelid transplant program could look like in other countries such as the the, the states, right? So right. I think you know that's one of the biggest things. I hope that our data can be used to support further talks. Uh, with the FDA to get this approval because this is real world data. This is Agreed. beyond clinical research. That's occur that's what mostly occurs in the U.S. Right. So yeah. I think that's a big point. No, uh, it's a it's a huge point. And yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I think that 
You know, I mean, you can use this Canadian playbook really to kind of think, um, be more forward thinking about really how to get from point A to B, the stalled point where they are, uh, to to really be more inclusive of of what's what's in the future. Um, I have a call. I have a question here from Avishal Parekh. What can be applied to the dosing of stem cell islets from the recent twenty-year follow-up report? Does it, either of you want to answer that? Well, you go ahead with that, and I'll follow. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I think we can have complementary responses to this. So, first of all, uh, I think the dosing is one thing, right? This is what I'm gonna say. The dosing of the islets. It's been typically used as, you know, more islets, better outcomes. And, and, and in a way, that's true, right? In a way, in the paper, we, we see that, you know, obviously the patients that had sustained graft survival had more islets, you know, more infusions. That's, that's correct. But in the long term, 10 years after, 20 years after, we do see that patient factors might be actually equally relevant or more relevant to long-term survival of the grafts and particularly insulin dependence, it seems that insulin dependence, you know, you can get more insulin dependence with more islets, that's okay. But maintaining that, it's more related to how the patient responds to the graft. So I think, you know, islets uh, and the dose of islets is, is one important thing. We can get some, some data here. We had 80% um, of our patients had more than 11,000 IQ per kilo, which is, you know, fairly um, a known number that can be good to, to have these outcomes. But I think, you know, a lot of work is needed to, to, the, to have the, the, the specific dose. And, you know, another thing that we're doing, and this is kind of a spoiler of a, a study that's being uh, reviewed, is, you know, what levels of C peptide are needed to maintain relevant uh, clinical outcomes, such as freedom of hypoglycemia and even insulin dependence. So all those things are, are very important, but I think that Trapeau can comment also on the, on the, you know, predicted or, you know, projected doses that will be needed in clinical trials. Well, this, uh, this, is, this discussion is sort of interesting and relevant to, you know, perhaps the Vertex trials, maybe the Viasite trials, and how, how many cells do you need yeah. to engraft of a stem cell product to achieve maximal metabolic sustained benefit over the course of time? Yeah. And one of the issues and opportunities here is that the stem cell products are far purer than the islet products are, far, far purer. The islets are you know, only 30 to 50% pure, even when we say we purified them. That's we've 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 cleaned up some of the exocrine contamination with with the co uh, two nine nine one cell cellulosis type systems, but they are impure. But whereas the, whereas the stem cell products are highly purified, and and so our ability to deploy a full dose of cells without risk of portal vein thrombosis, if we're going to put them in the portal vein, if that can that's another point of discussion. But if we are, that then then I think we, we can achieve a, a, a much greater islet engraftment mass. I mean, why not, why not aim for a normal engraftment of a full complement of, of cells, more than, more than perhaps there would be in the native pancreas, so you can afford to lose a few over, over the course of time. Uh, the, the risk of hypoglycemia by overdosing of islets is, yeah. is almost impossible to achieve. I mean, islets are beautiful structures, and they, are, they have this ability to sh shut off whenever there's a hypoglycemic environment. So the likelihood that you would overdose and, and 
cause a problem, I think would be very slim indeed. That's an excellent point. And one that I'm, I think, you know, probably on some, some people's mind. Um, I wondered if we would like to take any more questions. Uh, if anyone's there, you feel free to unmute yourself. Um, here's another question. What are the, uh, to Brulio, uh, what are the patient factors, biomarkers you suspect are influencing treatment outcomes? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Yeah. And we did try to answer this in the paper. Uh, we saw that there were, there were key differences in patients that achieve sustained graft survival. That is more than 90% of graft survival during their follow-up. Let's say uh, if they have 10-year follow-up, they had nine years of graft survival. Right? Those patients were older, they had more, more uh, duration of diabetes, so that, that may speak about the senescence of the immune responses too. Obviously, the, the islet uh, equivalents that were infused, um, but doing a multivariate logistic regression where we adjust for age at transplant, hypertension at baseline, microvascular disease, uh, the dose of islets, the size of the islets called the islet index, the insulin units, which were all significantly different, we found that the use of uh, anakindra plus a tannercept and uh, a good engraftment at, at one, within one year of transplant were uh, predictive factors for long-term uh, long graft survival. So I think, you know, in terms of the patient demographics, we did see something, but when you adjust for all of those ones, I think the engraftment at, at six to 12 months and the use of anti-inflammatory therapies are the things that predict. Naturally, one of the things that we didn't have the information, and I think this is, this is vital, is about the immune responses. We don't know what's happening with their T cells, with their cytokine responses, right? With the regulatory T cells specifically, the profile, the autoantibodies that were present. All of these things are great areas of opportunity that we're going to, to be looking into as we move forward with other, other studies, yeah. And I don't know if you want to compliment Dr. Pirro and uh, other, other factors that you've noticed. No, I, I don't have all the answers on that one. So, so you know, the, the patient factors are, are complex, they're complex to analyze. And I don't think we have very good measures of, of you know, we're not, we're not doing detailed um, qu quantum dot analysis to, to look for you know, what, what, the, what the autoimmune pathways are doing long-term, what the autoimmune pathways are, we, we don't really have a good good handle on that, and we, and we don't have a good understanding, mainly because we don't have good histology of, of these cells. Once, once they're deployed in the liver, they've gone. You know, they sit there, they, they, they engraft, we presume, but we don't really know beyond there what's, what's happening from an immune point of view. If, I think if we had a better resolution of, of immune events, short and long term, we'd have a better understanding of the biology behind survival or, or otherwise, and then we could intervene with more rational therapists. Um, sort of to your, to your last point, you know, you, we know that there's a, um, a heterogeneity in the autoantibody presentation in type one diabetes patients. Did you see any overlap with certain autoantibody profiles and success rates or not? Was there any did you, did you dig into that data and, and did you take a look at the, you know, the genetic data, those who had the higher risk factors in the HLA regions, is that, or is that like something you're doing next? So we are, yeah, we are doing exactly. that. Uh, <laughs> Professor Shireen Forbes in Edinburgh is yeah, looking yeah. at that in very great detail. 
uh, right now in our in our patient groups. I have to say that it's a it's a very complex data set that you know we yes. we mainly because we don't we don't have good measures of autoimmunity. We we have a massive database of HLA typings for the donors and recipients. It's really complex because you've got donors sometimes two, three, four donors go into one recipient. How do how do you figure all that out? So we're we're, we're trying putting all that data together right now, and, and Professor Forbes is doing a, a terrific job uh, with the HLA team to do that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that'll that be sense. very interesting to see that these data. Um, and I, you know, there's this whole, um, you know, is there any way to sample uh, people's T cells? I know they're really kind of limited um, and they're hard to, to purify because there's so, there not that many of them in, in the blood. But I mean, once people receive the, the transplant, are you then sort of, you know, taking their blood and trying to determine whether or not that, you know, memory T cells are reactivated? Are you able to, to sort of mine that you referred to, you know, the T regs, like what's happening in, in, in that space? We, we worked with Bart Rope uh, for, uh, for a while. He, he did some very elegant studies on, on our patient subset, but we, we've not kept up with the collection of data, I suppose, when you get to a point where you've got a routine clinical program delivering clinical care, and, and it doesn't necessarily, the, the, at least the hospital systems and the government don't fund the level of research to the same degree, so yeah. as, as you'd expect. So we've been, I think, good at practicing islet transplantation, perhaps not as good at studying the human immune system in, interactions in the, in the way that we could, mainly because we don't have access locally to a an expert human immunologist. And that's, that's certainly been a challenge for us. What would it take to accelerate that program, you know, outside of funds? (laughs) Well, no, I think funds and and an individual that has the passion and the knowledge to, to understand that human immune system interface. Yeah. Okay. I was going to, I was going to call for talent right there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a huge, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity here. When I first came, like I first learned about islet transplantation like four years and a half ago, five years. In Mexico, they don't teach it. We don't do it, right? So I learned about that. And when I came here, I, I saw a lot of areas of opportunity. One is that, right, the, the immunological side of things, but also like, and this is, you know, probably me inserting myself in the program, but someone that is actually tr- passionate about doing this clinical research, looking at the data and, and, and developing like a formal, a formal research program in, in, in moving forward prospectively. Right. So I think that's a huge opportunity and we will do that. I'm sure about it. Yeah. The Sanger welcome group, you know, uh, just published a great paper, a nature paper where they looked at 119 healthy individuals and they kind of drilled down. I'm sure you guys have seen this, um, you know, on, on, um, you know, the, the T, the CD4 plus T cell identity yeah. is really interesting. And, and that it would be so great to sort of layer that kind of approach over what it is you're doing. Cause you've got the real clinical on the ground data with patients. And then they're, they're coming at it from that event. It just seems like it'd be a beautiful, um, collaborative piece. And, and, um, they did indicate, you know, they, they pulled out some T1D, um, 
associations and you know they're like okay at the end of the paper it's like okay next steps we're going to head into some of these disease states so you know who knows maybe there's a collaborative piece there but um i do think that uh, what you're doing up there in alberta is superlative the way canada is operating um is exemplary and um if it would be great if perhaps um you know, the FDA would sort of take note of all the good things that are happening up there and really kind of, you know, maybe rethink what, you know, their approach is and, and incorporate, you know, some of the, some of the great um, approaches you've got going there and, and I guess into their decision prop process. So if there's any, anything, anyone else? Oh, here we go. One more thing, one more question or a little over time. So I'll take one more. Um, just uh, to respect your time. I know you're very busy, but the question is beta two score was also statistically significant, but the C-peptide levels post-meal were no different between the treatment outcome. What were your interpretations? Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming the question is regarding the baseline uh, C-peptide levels, which were no different. And, and honestly, we didn't expect to see any differences because these patients are fairly homogenous in the way they're selected. Uh, for transplant, but the beta two score, that's interesting because that is post-transplant. And, and in this case, we chose the six to 12 months uh, time point after transplant because a lot of patients have infusions within the first six months. So we wanted to look at, at, at engraftment post, you know, most of the infusions. And we did see that, you know, these patients, even after a month, they separate, they have better engraftment. Mm. And that is not related to the dose of islets. There's something in the patients uh, because they had similar IQs uh, per kilo, this, they separate in their beta two score. They they achieve better engraftment, and that engraftment actually maintains over time. In terms of the C peptide levels, they should be similar at baseline, and over time, obviously, it's it's different because they're surviving. The graft is producing C peptide, but the beta two score, which includes HA one C levels, insulin requirements, fasting glucose, and C peptide, gives you a more complete uh, assessment of the graft function it was actually better and as, as, as early as one month post hmm. first infusion, which is, you know, interesting. And it's the first time with that we've shown long-term, uh, the long-term use of the, the beta two score in, in this population. It's fascinating. Well, I would encourage those who have not yet uh, read your paper to uh, seek it out and um, reach out to either uh, Dr. Shapiro or Dr. Marfil to discuss this uh, at length or even, uh, thanks for putting your email in the chat, um, or even, you know, uh, discuss possible uh, opportunities and collaborations. And thank you so much for the excellent work you're continuing to do up at University of Alberta. And um, it was great talking with you both. Thank you. Thank, thank you, so Monica. Thanks for a great forum. Have yeah. a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. You too, thank bye. You. Bye-bye.